Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Shelter in Place, a podcast about reimagining life through creativity and community. Is there a word for a friend you've never met? An online soul sister, a Google guru, a kindred spirit. No matter the words I use to describe her, Laura Joyce Davis, the host of Shelter in Place, feels like a friend. Each week on her podcast, Laura shares stories that make me feel like I'm sitting around the coffee table or laughing with my best people. One listener described Shelter in Place as a warm hug. Others have called it binge-worthy and wonder-filled, like catching up with an old friend. So if you are longing for joy, rest, or beauty, if you are looking for a show that helps us not to escape out of life, but into it, check out Shelter in Place wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned today, at the end of our episode, to hear a trailer for Shelter in Place. I talk a lot with people who are just like me. I'm a nerdy, bookish, weightlifting enthusiast who drinks iced coffee, loves teen rom-coms, and stashes whatchamacallit candy bars in my glove compartment. I'm delighted when I find other people who want to kvetch about the latest love interest on Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever. I'm over the moon if a friend invites me for a Pride and Prejudice viewing party. And of course, I can talk about books for hours. I love people who love what I love. I think a lot of us are like this. Even on social media, algorithms pair us up with other vegetable gardeners who also keep chickens. Or other Gen Xers reminiscing about that River Phoenix article we read in Seventeen magazine when we were 11. However... As fun as it can be to yell, same, same, when we identify 100% with other people's themness, for both our politics and our mental well-being, it's probably good to talk with folks whom we perceive to be unlike us, too. Because whether we admit it or not, most of us walk around with certain assumptions about entire groups of people we have never met. When I first moved to South Carolina, I remember laughing when someone asked me about my accent. My accent? But it was true. To the locals in Charleston, I spoke like I was from away, with all the suppositions they had about Yankees. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, where the only Yankees I knew were baseball players who all too often whooped our local team. But to my colleagues in that southern town, I was a Yankee, too. As a woman who prides myself on strength, autonomy, and acceptance, all too often I can demonstrate judgmentalness and weakness. If we want our world to be different, our country to be different, and our politics to be different, then we need to practice talking across those perceived lines of difference. I do that today with author Julia Brewer-Daly. Ms. Daly is a pro-adoption Southerner from Mississippi and Texas. Before we ever met, I had assumptions about her politics, principles, 
even prejudices. And she may have had her own about mine. But we shared our stories. We connected across the pages of her book and sought commonality and understanding. And I know that I, for one, am all the better for having done this. Elections and politicians and social media echo chambers have done a lot to divide us from one another. I am so tired of that. I'm grateful for this show and for Ms. Daly's time to bridge some of that distance and to find connections and understanding. So let me tell you a little more about today's guest. Julia Brewer Daly is a Texan from Mississippi. She has been an educator, professor, administrator, and public relations director for both the Mississippi Department of Education and Millsaps College. Julia was the founding director of the Greater Bellhaven Market and the executive director of the Craftsman's Guild of Mississippi, helping over 300 artisans from 19 states to share their wares and tell their stories. Julia and her husband live on a ranch in Texas with two Labrador retrievers, Memphis Belle and Texas Star. Julia Brewer Daly, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy that you're here too. And we, you and I, I think know one another from, uh, we have an organization in common, the Women Fiction Writers Association, where I think that that's where we first became connected. But for those unfamiliar with that group or with you and your work, I'm wondering if you'd go ahead and just answer our opening question, which is always some version of what is your story? Well, my story began in the South. I'm a Southerner and I grew up in Mississippi and spent 62 years there to now be buried in Texas. So (laughs) I, I survived the humidity and and uh, the hot temperatures, and I really do like the hot temperatures in Texas. Uh, <laughs> and I spent a lot of time in education. I was public relations director for the State Department of Education in Mississippi, and I worked at different colleges. I even was an adjunct professor in communications, so marketing and public relations most of my life. But one of my favorite jobs was as executive director of a nonprofit, which is the Craftsman's Guild of Mississippi, and they operate the Mississippi Craft Center. So I got to tell the stories of 300 very talented artisans from 19 different states, and I really enjoyed doing that. Wow. What kind of crafts? For, at first, I was thinking 300 different crafts, but I think I could name like four. <laughs> oh, it's it's great to talk about them. They are Uh, so inspiring. It's everything from pottery and leather, blacksmithing and glasswork, jewelry making, basket weaving. Uh, Even the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians were members of our group, and so I became enamored of their talent to weave baskets, and um, I have a large collection of those as well. So it it was a great time in my career to, to be there and to talk about them to other people and share their talents. Wow. Where does your story, your own story go from there? Well, my own story began, my origin story began in a maternity home in New Orleans. I was put up for adoption, relinquished for adoption at age two months. And my adoptive parents from Mississippi 
um, picked me up in New Orleans and took me to Mississippi, and I lived my life there. And so that's really the topic of my debut novel. Um, I'm one of the growing number of uh, debut novelist over the age of 60. There's a really a large group of us out here, and I'm excited to, to hear that. But I waited until now to get my story down on paper. If I had told that story 45 years ago when I searched and found my birth mother, it would have been quite spectacular because no one was talking about the subject of adoption, and no one was searching and finding their birth parents, so it would have been um, quite different than it is today when almost every magazine or book you pick up has some element of adoption in it. So it's been quite um, a fun journey. I was a single parent for a long time, have three great children and lots of grandchildren, and we do believe in adoption in my family. My oldest daughter adopted four older children, and um, so it's it's been quite an interesting journey. That's wonderful. So you say that, like the babies in your book, and I should mention the title of your book is No Names to Be Given, like the babies in your book, you were born at a maternity hospital. I've read the book, so I know what that is, but I'm not sure all of our listeners will know what a maternity hospital is. I, they could suss it out, but I'm not sure they'll get it entirely right. Can you tell us about maternity hospitals? Well, I think especially the young women today, every time one person reads my book, they are just astonished that that time even existed and uh, not you know so long ago. In the early 20th century, women were shipped away to these homes to have babies in secret, and they relinquished them for adoption, and they returned home as if nothing transpired. And I think today, so many more women keep their babies than give them up. But in many communities, children out of wedlock and single mothers are still treated differently and some experience prejudice. So I think those birth parents wanted better lives for their children than they were able to provide. And, um, and I am, for one, am very grateful for that. Now, growing up, did you understand your origin story? Because in your book, we meet a number of women with, with different variations of, oh, my, my auntie's taking me to Europe, and then instead they end up having a baby somewhere. So the secret is, is kept in different ways. But as far as you are a child who was born in a hospital and adopted, how did your family teach you about your birth story? Well, my parents began reading children's adoption stories to me when I was young, and those books emphasized how adoptees are chosen children, and I was taught that I was special and loved and wanted. I even um, uh, lorded that over my younger siblings because we had the old adoption syndrome in my family where um, my mother was told she would never be able to have uh, her natural children. And 19 months later, after they adopted me, my brother was born, and 10 years later, my sister. So when they would always say, well, mother and daddy love you more than us. And I would say, of course they do, because I was chosen, <laughs> and you were accidents. <laughs> but you know, that's the way siblings will, will speak to each other. But um, no, I, I don't ever remember a time when they didn't tell me that I was 
you know, adopted and how special that was. It was never a secret in my family. And I think that's a problem in some families because I don't know if you know, but when you adopt a child, the birth certificate is changed. The original birth certificate is sealed. Those records are sealed in most states. There are only about four states who have open record laws in the country. And so we are given a different birth certificate that reflects our adoptive parents gave birth to us. In your research, did you come across how widespread was this practice? Are we talking about dozens of babies, hundreds of babies, thousands of babies? What did you learn about these maternity hospitals when you were researching this book? There were hundreds of thousands of babies given up for adoption from probably the 30s until about the 80s. And a uh, hundred million Americans have adoption in their immediate families. There are a lot of adopted children out there. So while you were growing up, you knew that you were a chosen child and you knew that your parents went out of their way to help you understand your story. So it, it wasn't a secret. You didn't feel the kind of shame that some of the women who were giving up their babies in your story talked about. When did you set out then to search for your birth mother? Was she always an idea in the back of your mind or was it something you came to at a later age? Speaking from my own experience, I think that children will always wonder why the woman who gave birth to them relinquished them for adoption. And and we build fantasies in our minds about the situation. And the reason I wanted to search was not uh, about my childhood. I had a, a lovely childhood and wonderful adoptive parents but I wanted to know more about health issues because every time I would go into a doctor's office, they would say, do you have a history of cancer in your family or diabetes or heart disease? And I would have to say, I don't know because I'm adopted. And back then, they did not leave any health records uh, for the adoptive parents to know. So when I began having my own family and my children all had sinus infections and ear infections and uh, some of the same um, diseases that I had, I thought, you know, I'd like to find out more about this so that I can tell my children what's, you know, happening in their genetics. And I went to uh, New Orleans to the Bureau of Records, and you had to actually go into a courtroom and be uh, cross-examined by these people in the Bureau <laughs> of Records, and they would say, you just want to find your birth mother because you hate her for giving you up. And I said, absolutely not. I'm so thrilled that she gave birth to me and gave me the life that I've had, but I do want to know health records. And at the time, there was still a Napoleonic law on the books that said that an adopted child could inherit from their natural parents. Well, you can't inherit from somebody that you don't know. So that was the little loophole that opened the records for me. I think it's since closed, but there was a time that I could get those original birth certificates. And when I did, I saw that the address was in Mississippi, where she had lived at the time. And I um, got the phone number and contacted um, who turned out to be my birth grandmother. And I asked her if 
her daughter had given up a baby for adoption. And she said, absolutely not. Oh, the and, shame and the secrecy. Yeah, the continued. shame and the secrecy. It, it was continuing in her family. And I said, well, here's my telephone number. And if she'd like to get in touch with her, in touch with me, just let me know. And sure enough, my birth mother called me that night. And we had a, a lovely wow. conversation. And um, she had not told her sons about me. So she had to share that with them before I could you know, meet the family. She had told her husband, but uh, had not told her son. So there's a lot of that. You know, you have to be prepared. If you're going to do a search, you go into it knowing that you might not be received well. You might be rejected again, and you have to just be prepared uh, when you want to search. Wow. Do you remember what you felt like making that first phone call to that number that you thought might be your birth family? Were you nervous? Did you, I don't know, write it down what you were going to say? Did you, were you afraid it was going to be like the wrong? Take me back to that moment. I'm just thinking about what was going on inside your head. I was very nervous. And um, when my birth mother called, she was so gracious and so lovely and wanted to explain to me you know, the situation that caused her to give me up for adoption. And she and I stayed on the phone. It was late at night, and we stayed on the phone, and I was shivering and shaking and so nervous and just loved hearing her voice. And then when I met her for the first time and saw that she actually looked like me, you know, that just broke me in half. And it was, it was just a complete full circle moment. It was really the most incredible feeling because you knew that this woman had carried you inside her for nine months. She had nursed you before she left you in this home, and she had worried about you your entire life. She said she prayed all over Europe in every cathedral that I would be okay because, you know, she would see these terrible stories about child abuse, and she would wonder, did I give my child to one of those situations. So she certainly had um, a lifetime of worry for me, whereas I had a lovely life. And I, although I thought about her and wondered about her a lot, um, you know, I didn't have the worry and the grief and the loss that she had had. And that's what has been the most interesting part of this, writing this book, is that birth mothers have reached out to me. And one of them is from California and gave birth to her son and relinquished him for adoption in the same maternity home where I was born. So, you know, hearing these stories has just been a, a just a precious time for me um, and, and brings closure, I think, to some of the birth mothers to know that, that they did do what was good for their child at the time. I have never really thought about it. I've always thought about it from the perspective of the child who was who was relinquished for adoption, that I understood that that child might be curious. Truthfully, I've had friends who were adopted who then reconnected with their birth families. I've always thought about it from that perspective. I'd never thought about the fact that those moms who had to make a difficult decision wouldn't have, in many cases, wouldn't have any way 
to find their child. You said you were able to, through a loophole, right? It was a kind of a loophole, find your birth mother. But there was no loophole available for her to find you. No. No, not at all. And now, um, I think they match up um, records if both the child given up and the adoptive parent want to reconnect. In some situations, in some states and maternity homes, they will allow that to happen if both uh, want to find each other. And so maybe we're, you know, we're moving toward toward that. Now, I can understand um, the thought that... Um, the parents who adopted a child would not want someone showing up on their doorstep when the child was five years old and take that child back from them. I can understand the fear that was uh, part of my adoptive parents' life. They were always afraid that someone would come back and, and take me from them. So, you know, I can see it from all different angles. Adoption is so complex and such a flip of the coin that you know, there's such sadness and grief for a birth mother to relinquish a child, but there's such excitement and joy for adoptive parents um, that being adopted can be both wonderful and sad at the same time. Absolutely. I have friends for whom adopting a child was the realization of dreams they thought they were never going to have come true, right? That That to welcome a child into their home because they themselves could not conceive was just the completion of of this dream that you had the fulfillment of what you what you wanted for yourself and your family and so you're right the completeness that a baby can bring to a family is is wonderful but i again had not thought about those moms whose circumstances i i, I could imagine many 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 circumstances where it just was going to be too hard to have a baby. Uh, and for them, that difficulty. Well, you, you said your, your own mother. Did she, did she share with you anything that you could share with us? What, what was her situation? Well, back then, she was Catholic. He was Jewish. That was like a biracial relationship in the 50s. You know, it was just unheard of. He was called home to Chicago to find a nice Jewish girl to marry, and she was um, not allowed to marry him. So there were so many prejudices back then, and society was so closed and had so many rules and regulations about what you could or couldn't do that... um, you know, my birth mother wanted to, to marry him, and it was just unheard of and not going to happen. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. (music) 
Wow. So for folks who haven't read uh, No Names to Be Given, in your book, you tell three stories of three different women who are sent to live in a maternity home in New Orleans, Becca, Faith, and Sandy, all, just like you've been describing, find themselves pregnant. And they're essentially, in most cases, they're shipped off or they've they've got nowhere else to go um, to a place where they will not meet their babies. They will have their babies, never meet them, and give them up for adoption. Um, It was that never meeting them part that I hadn't thought about. Did your mother never get to meet you or... Was that something that was sometimes they met the baby, sometimes they didn't? Well, it depended on the home, I believe. But most um, people who ran these homes did not think that that would be conducive to that mother giving up that baby, that she might bond with this child and not want to give them up for adoption. So they kept them from meeting these children. And one of the young women who read my book said, well, now, why wouldn't they have known whether they had a boy or a girl? And I said, well, even when I had my first child, we were knocked out cold and they used forceps to deliver babies back then. And you didn't know when you woke up if you had even had a baby or not. And that's what happened in many of these cases. Um, they did not know whether they had given birth to a, a baby boy or a baby girl. At first, I made a note, actually, in your—so these three women all have babies on the same the same day, and you skip the labor part. And I've, I've had— I've had three children, and I, I know of, of my memory of the hospital, that ain't a part I would of the story I'm going to skip. Right? I got things to say about those hours and those those feelings. But but exactly, I realized that because this was happening in the 1960s, exactly as you're describing, it was common practice years ago to put women other, under, whether it was ether or whatever else they used. Uh, and they would, for lack of better words, go in and get the babies. And so these women have no memory of not just their babies, but the entire labor and delivery that they were knocked out cold. That was that was so strange to me, considering how we do childbirth now. Yes. And, and think of how demeaning that was to these women. And when, when I talked to some of these women, these birth mothers who were in these homes, some of them just have terrible experiences, not only giving um, up a child for adoption, but the way they were treated by the people who um, were supposed to be helping them, assisting them. And when I wrote in my book, I was trying to make the home um you know, with counselors who would talk to them about their bodies and the recovery process and how they were doing a great thing to, you know, give up their babies if they couldn't keep them. And I've heard that that's not always the case, that sometimes they were really in horrific situations. And uh, it makes me very sad. Very true. Your book also has a a political element I wanted to ask you about. Um, your, Your book, No Names to Be Given, imagines a world in which the states of Mississippi and Alabama both elect governors in the 1980s who actively fight for civil rights and racial equity. Um, In the actual history of these states, I mean, Alabama's governor for most of the 80s was George Wallace, (laughs) right, who who infamously opposed the desegregation of public schools. I'm not telling you anything you don't know there. Um, And you also envision Alabama electing its first 
black governor, something which, unless I'm wrong here, neither Alabama nor Mississippi has ever done that in the real world. Why did you choose to portray Southern politicians in this way? I guess I'm just um, an idealist. <laughs> I, I, I really want the South to be like that. Um, I, I loved those characters, and especially Zeke, African-American from Alabama, I uh, just wanted him not to have to be a broadcaster interviewing a white governor, but to be on equal footing with a white governor and be a governor himself. Um, and also, it was funny because one of my friends is um, a political campaign manager, and she read the book, and she said, the only issue I want to... Um, talk to you about is that two southern states would not have had the electoral <laughs> votes to be able to and I said you are going right over my head I am so apolitical I said this is fiction remember and I can make it any way I want <laughs> but um, yeah I you know I think um I have seen so many changes in the South, and Mississippi has had more um, elected officials who are African-American than most any state in the country now. So we are seeing a lot of changes, and um, for the better. And so I, I kind of wanted to reflect that a little bit in the in the book. I think that's one of the wonderful things about fiction is that we get to imagine a world that we hope is possible. And I, I did find those sections of your book. I was like, wait a minute, did I miss an election? I, I don't remember. And and then I went along with it, right? The suspension of, of the willing suspension of, of disbelief. And, and, and I liked that you give Zeke the opportunity to reconnect with his, his daughter, who he didn't know he even had, right? That, that I'm not giving too much away there, saying that there are men in this book who who also want to get to know their their children who they didn't didn't know were out there. Um, it's not just women who want that. No, but didn't you love his wife? I mean, someone who can accept another a woman's child as her own, the love child of her husband. I thought, you know, she was a very strong character. Um, and I, that's one thing I, I love about adoptive parents is, you know, to be able to love another person's child as much as you would have loved your own birth child. You know, you have to to love these birth parents and to know that they are really stepping out in faith. And, and I can look at my grandchildren who are adopted and those who are not, and I don't see any difference. Yeah, they're all, they're all your grandbabies. They're all your grandbabies. When I look at a book with autobiographical hints, right? This is a this is a work of fiction, yes, but I do see your story woven through it. I'm always wondering the point of entry for the author. In in this case, I assumed or guessed that Julie in the book is um is your point of entry. Am I right there? Yes. Yes, there were several uh, chapters there that were actual stories out of my childhood. If you remember 
all of the generations of women sitting around the table in the kitchen. And um, my great-grandmother wanted to know how many offspring she had. And she was talking about her natural offspring, her blood offspring. You know, that's what people wanted to know back then. And so she had three of us who were adopted, and she scratched them off her list, you know, and said, these aren't, you know, wow. my, my offspring. And I can remember looking at her, and, and I said, well, if I'm not on this list, whose list am I on? And, you know, that was a true story. Another true story in the book was when our uh, my teenage friends and I were riding with my mother, if you remember that I one in the car. This. Because I, I purchased the lyrics for Love Child to put in there because I thought it was so important. We loved that song so much, but I didn't have any clue that that would it would be the one that I was the one that my mother was talking about and worrying about that I would know that I was actually one of those love children that I was singing about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I guess that's a, that's a way that we can point to that our world has shifted enough that that all all children are are love children and they're all loved and we're not classifying who who was born in this way and who was born in that. I do think that's a way we have grown past the kind of secrecy and shame that you describe having happened in in your book. And I do hope that this book draws attention to those thousands and thousands of children in the foster care system across the United States. You know, uh, older children are not looked at the same as as infants about um, adopting them. And I just hope that people will take a second look at all of these children who so desperately want a home. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, tell me a little bit about you as a writer. How long did it take to write this story? Well, as I said, I thought about it 45 years ago. <laughs> And and when I was working at Millsaps College, a liberal arts college in Jackson, Mississippi, they allowed us to take some courses, um, and I took a writing course, and I wrote a couple of these chapters, and I put them in a file, and when we were moving to Texas, I found that file, and I said, you know, it's time that I wrote this story. And so I started taking a lot of writer's uh, classes and going to writers retreats and um, signed up for just about every group that I could and to hone my craft because I had written all of my life but not fiction and that's a whole different ball game <laughs> and then I began um, searching for an agent and I sent out the the manuscript far too early before it was ready and I finally thought, you know, at my age, I don't have the benefit of time to find an agent and pursue traditional publishing because from all the classes I took, I knew that it takes a minimum of two years to publish after an agent has been hired. And that's just the minimum. So I started thinking about self-publishing. You know, that's a, a real good route for people today. But then on a writer's retreat, I met a woman who is an author herself, and she and her husband have written more than 50 books, and she began a small woman-owned imprint to print her own books and a few for clients. And so um, I partnered with her, and we got the book out there. So all in all, it's been a, a new career for me. It's been so much fun. to I was never one to sit home and not to do anything. And so I, I write every day. I, I've written a second book as well. 
And I, I think that my advice to people is if you have a novel inside of you that needs to find an audience, it's never too late. <laughs> That's very true. I love I love that. Hey, who are some of your writer crushes? Whose work do you just love? Well, it's really funny because I have gotten so hooked on thrillers. I've never read thrillers in my life. And now I ride my bike on the back roads here in Texas, and I listen to um, all these thrillers that make me gasp as I'm driving down the road, you know, and I look around to see if anybody's watching me. But Julie Clark has written a, a great thriller called The Last Flight. And I am so angry I didn't come up with that premise. It's about two women who meet in an airport, and they both want to disappear, so they exchange tickets. <laughs> Isn't that, that great? That sounds amazing, Isn't... and I feel like the next time I'm in, I'm in an airport on a <laughs> stopover, I'm just going to start asking around. Just... Where are you going? And and can we switch and just see what happens? That's a great premise. Isn't it? I love that. And um, one of my editors is Stacy Swan, and she wrote um, a book last year called Olympus, Texas. So I, I love it. That's great. I'm, I will make sure to link to those in our show notes. Well, here on the show, as you, as you know, we always like to close with a few icebreakers. I'm like a camp counselor in that way. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a few uh, multiple choice and just ask you to to pick one, okay? Okay. All right. Uh, Julia, dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Tea. Mountains or beach? Mountains. Sweet tea or barbecue? Barbecue. Oh, really? I wasn't <laughs> sure the Mississippi or the Texas, what would win mm -hmm. out? What's your favorite barbecue um, that you found in Texas? Oh, Cooper's in Llano, Texas is fantastic. All right. We'll give them a shout out. Um, cake or pie? Cake. Are you an early bird or a night owl? I'm a night owl. Interesting. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are? I'm a risk taker. It's burned me more often than not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you can only... I think someone in your book talks about this, right? You can, You can only... Go after, th you know, you you can only get what you go after. You know, you if you don't go for it, it's never going to happen. Um, That's true. What is something quirky that folks don't know about you? Likes, loves, pet peeves? Well, my biggest pet peeve is a bully. I really want to um, take boxing lessons so I can take out all the bullies in the world. But um, something that's kind of strange about me is I don't sleep. And... Um, so I wander around the house at night like a vampire, and I watch mindless television or read or work <laughs> on my novels. But in order to sleep, I have to go through this whole regiment of things. I have to have the earplugs in, my mouthpiece in. It has to be 68 degrees in the room. It has to be totally dark. There can be, you know, no sounds whatsoever, no fan, <laughs> no anything like that. I have to have the certain weight of blanket. And I have to have all of that to even get a few hours sleep. <laughs> Oh, I want to come tuck you in. Can I come tuck you in? Yes, please. I will, I will have to do that. My parents-in-law live in Texas, so you think I'm joking. But if I show up on your doorstep, you'll I know I'll have I would love it. I would love it. 
Oh, uh, what's one of your go-to songs? Well, my favorite song, because um, I'm a huge Beatles fan, I actually got to see the Beatles in concert when I was about 12 years old. And my little five-year-old granddaughter has started singing this song, and it just wow breaks my heart every time she does. Blackbird. Wow. Okay, if I... That does sound adorable, but but I need to freeze on this idea of you saw the Beatles when you were 12. How did you manage that? And where were they? And were you Ringo, Paul, George, or the (laughs) other one? John, who... Who, tell me about that concert. I was Paul all the way, and we would dress up. My friends and I would dress up and wear beetle wigs and use uh, tennis rackets as our guitars and force our parents to sit through concerts oh. where we lip-synced hundreds of beetle songs. <laughs> so they decided to take me for my 12th birthday to Memphis to see the Beatles. So that was my... Big claim to fame. Of course, I did see all the others like Herman's Hermits and the Monkeys and all of those as well. But Wow. Was Blackbird, was that your favorite song then or did you have a different oh, song? You, you know, back then I loved I Want to Hold Your Hand and all of those. <laughs> sure, sure. Those were the ones on the radio. Although we screamed so loudly, I don't think we heard a single verse of any song. <laughs> Beatlemania. Oh, that's great. My mom was a team Paul as well, though she never got to see them in concert. She's going to be jealous of you. I know. Um, What's your favorite book, movie, or both? Oh, wow. You know, my favorite book is the last one I read, and of course, The Last Flight was that one, so I Mm -hmm. always say that's that's it. One of my favorite movies um, was Giant. Do you remember that with Elizabeth Taylor? Oh, wow. I have not seen that in years. I used to watch old movies with my dad. She was just gorgeous with those violet eyes. And, of course, it was in Texas, and here I am now. Look at you following the movie script. Not the whole thing, hopefully, but the the being beautiful in Texas part. (laughs) Absolutely. That's right. What's your favorite ice cream? I love Bluebell ice cream. It's made here in Texas, and they have what's called Butter Crunch, which is Butterfingers. And vanilla ice cream. Nice. Oh, that sounds very good. All right. And the last one, if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? You would see me surrounded by my grandchildren on a cruise somewhere to nowhere just to be around them. Oh, here is to cruising to nowhere. May we get that back soon. We've been without it for too long. Yes. Well, Julia Brewer-Daly, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for writing No Names to Be Given, which has been described as a, quote, novel worthy of a lifetime movie adaptation. So if there are folks out there listening, this would be a good one. Uh, Thank you for teaching us that it's never too late to realize a dream and that when it all comes down to it, in most of our families and in most of our hearts, there is more than enough love to go around. We're grateful that you spent time here with us today. And to everyone listening, we are wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers, Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya, producer Sarah Wilgrube, and audio engineer Ian Douglas. 
Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe this pandemic has been awesome for you. Life's better, everything's rosy, and you just made a million dollars. Or maybe you're like me. Maybe this has been an incredibly hard couple of years. Maybe you've made some changes, good changes, and it hasn't panned out in quite the way you hoped it would. If any of this resonates, then I want to invite you to escape into life with us at Shelter in Place. We're a podcast that started as a way to grapple with the pandemic reality, but what we quickly became was a way to rewrite life through creativity and community. If you enjoy This American Life, On Being, or Snap Judgment, I think the chances are pretty good you'll like Shelter in Place. Here's what it sounds like. Some days, all I want to do is escape. I'm not just talking about getting out of my house. I'm talking about standing in a cathedral of redwoods, or the one time I saw the northern lights. That feeling that I'm part of something bigger. Escape can be small, too. Like the checkout worker who knows me, even though we've never seen each other's faces. Or the friend who hugs me and won't let go. That kind of escape flips a switch. It reminds me that even when the world is on fire, there is also beauty and delight. I can let my guard down. For a moment, I'm home. Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. We spent season two on a pandemic odyssey that brought us from one coast to the other and back again. In season three, we're bringing you stories in search of home. What do I want to welcome back into my life and what do I want to leave behind? We're not sure what home looks like anymore, but we know what we want from it. I want to know that I belong here. Not because of what I accomplished or earned, but because of who I am. I want a home where we don't pretend that our world isn't broken, but we're creating beauty from that brokenness. We're exploring how to be human in a way that feels expansive rather than exhausting. We're learning how to escape not out of life, but into it. Listen wherever you get podcasts or head to shelterinplacepodcast.org to join us on this journey in search of home. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.